We're continuing our series of messages uh, on our congregation's newly articulated core values and the biblical basis for each of those. And to that end, we're going to dig into the scriptures. Before we do that, one more time, let's pray. Join me. God, help us to be attentive to your word, to your voice, uh, to your speech, to the things that you have said and declared and made known that you've revealed about yourself, about us, about the world, about reality, uh, truth, and grace. Through your word, shape us, mold us, grow within us things that will bring you glory, help us to see you through your word. I ask and pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus. Amen. So let's open our Bibles. If you have a Bible at home, or if you want to grab a Bible here in uh, the sanctuary, to the Gospel of Mark, beginning at chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus is nearing the end of his public ministry now. We've kind of skipped ahead a little bit. We'll go back and fill in the spaces that we're jumping over. But today we've kind of jumped ahead to the latter part of Jesus' public ministry. He's on, he is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. His so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we will celebrate on Palm Sunday, uh, is just ahead, just around the corner. Jesus has now predicted, foretold his coming death three times to his disciples. They don't fully understand what's going on, but they know something big is coming up, something is happening. Jesus continues to teach his disciples about himself, about themselves, about the kingdom of God. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. Just like us, they were inconsistently consistent They were, just like me, a bag of contradictions. For every three steps they took forward, they took two steps backwards, which is me, it may be you. They were on this journey with Jesus. And now for the third time in Mark's gospel, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They would condemn him, and they would hand him over to the Gentile authorities who would spit on him, mock him, and kill him. And then we get to verse 35. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you remember them from chapter 1. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus' teacher. They said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They were fishermen back in chapter 1, you remember. Jesus sees them on their boat, doing their jobs, calls them, follow me, they come. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, which alone shows that they still don't really get it. But Jesus plays along with them. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. He had this hunch it was coming. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can They answered confidently. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now when the ten, in other words Jesus' 
other closest disciples, the other ten of the twelve, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospel of Mark, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we have here is one of the most important of Jesus' lessons in leadership and in life, in the way of living and the way of leading. Maybe the most important thing Jesus ever says about leadership. Jesus' activity is moving toward a climax. Something big is about to happen. Jesus' disciples can sense it. The brothers James and John, they're not dumb. They were fishermen, but they're not dumb. They were uneducated, but they're not dumb. They know something's up. Jesus' talk has changed. Jesus' tone has changed. They know he's Messiah, though they don't know exactly what that means. But they are headed toward Jerusalem with him up the mountain to the religious center, to the focal point, to the political center of their region and their lives. And James and John must have been talking to each other, their brothers, now they know this is their moment. If they're going to make a move, now is the time to make their move. If they want cabinet positions with Jesus, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, maybe Secretary of Treasury, if they want those important positions, they better act now. This is the way the world works. We've seen it this week in our nation. This is the way the world works. Jesus shakes his head. Fellas, you don't get it. You do not understand. And then word leaks out to the other disciples about what James and John had did. They'd done sort of an end run. They've kind of betrayed the fellowship of disciples. They'd put themselves above the other ten. They'd consider themselves more important. They'd sought things now for themselves. The other ten were, of course, livid. And Jesus brought them all together like a coach might bring together a squabbling team or a parent might bring together squabbling siblings. Jesus calls them all together and he says, Fellas, listen. This is the way people behave in the world. This is the way the Gentiles behave. This is the way the ungodly, the naive, the uninformed and selfish people behave. They are only interested in good for themselves. They seek positions. They seek prestige. They seek power for themselves. But I'm calling you to a different way now. My kingdom is different in every way. Leadership and life operate function and are lived out completely differently in my kingdom and this jesus says begins with me this whole enterprise begins with me and so also with you if you want to experience greatness, if you want to be great, if you want to live into the reality that God has for you, if you want to fit into the rule and the reign of God, if you want to experience the abundance that God has for you and through you, you must become, you must be a servant. 
For even the Son of Man did not come, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, even going back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, even the Messiah, even the Son of God did not come to be served. And to be served if one is Son of God would have been normative, would have been typical, would have been extended expected as a king for a king but even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve the son of man came to be a waiter the son of man came to be a busboy the son of man came to be a foot washer a custodian a domestic helper a maid a street cleaner a sanitation engineer a caregiver a diaper changer and according to the authoritative, Strong's, Bib, exhaustive concordance of the Bible, an attendant, especially of menial things or in menial ways, doing the world's dirtiest jobs, the world's least desirable jobs, the world's most menial jobs, roles, responsibilities, places in our world. And this was Jesus. This is Jesus. And if even Jesus did not come to be served, as every king, ruler, leader, master, chief, general, Messiah, Lord should be and rightly is, then what does this mean for you and me? What does this say to, for, and about those of us who would follow him, those of us who would dare to apprentice with him, those of us to, who would seek to walk in his steps and his way? The so-called servant songs of Isaiah 600 years earlier, before Jesus ministered in Galilee, Samaria, Judea, at such a Messiah. But no one ever put two and two together. No one put that part of Messiah together with Jesus. And certainly over the centuries since Jesus, we have so domesticated Jesus, institutionalized Jesus, religiousified Jesus, and toned down Jesus, watered down Jesus, normalized Jesus. And our ideas about being his disciples, followers, apprentices, that we have forgotten what he said and what he intended. Those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Say that with me. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus gave his disciples a new model for leadership and for life. In our world, in our time, we are greatly concerned with our rights. With our own rights. There's lots to talk about that in our culture today. And that's all fine and good. We are grateful for the rights afforded us by the constitution of the most rights-affording nation in history. But Jesus calls us not so much to embrace our rights to this or that, but instead our responsibilities as his students and pupils of the way. Being less concerned about our rights and more committed to our responsibilities of joy. I saw this graphic years ago and it's kind of stuck with me. The way of Jesus is the denial or the letting go of or the suppressing of one's rights in favor of increased responsibility and specifically the joy of serving. In contrast to deeply seated cultural and societal norms, Jesus dignified and dignifies what had always been considered lowly work and he elevated such to the most important work. Again, his upside down kingdom. No one wanted to be a servant. People wanted then, just as now, to be master and lord. No one wants to be a servant. Everyone wants to be boss, owner, served. Am I right? But we, following the Lord Jesus, strive to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour to the next generation intentionally, cultivate spiritual growth continually, serve our neighbors generously. Along the way, many people like us I've gotten the idea that being a Christian or being a disciple, student, apprentice of Jesus means primarily going to church. But if the inaccuracy of such an understanding hasn't been clear in the past, it certainly should have been during COVID. When going to church has not been possible. Instead, what Jesus has always called his disciples to is a different kind of leadership and a different kind of life characterized by servanthood, characterized by serving, which COVID cannot shut down. And so during the great epidemics of the second and third centuries, it was Christians who more than any other people at the risk of their own lives cared for the sick, tended to the ill, got down on their knees, got dirty in caring for those who were affected and disaffected by disease. And it is those who claim the name of Jesus, therefore, whose hands should be going up at opportunities to wash feet and mop floors and clean bathrooms and care for the sick and dying. To such we are called, and not just in our own homes and not just in the church and churches, but also especially in our communities and for our neighbors. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about why you live where you live? Wherever that is. 
Have you ever wondered or thought about why you live particularly, specifically, where you live today, where you have lived, where you will live, where you live today? I might say, someone might say that they live where they live because, thinking back to 13 years ago, someone said that was a good neighborhood, or I like the layout of the apartment, or in our case, a house, or there are some amenities that one finds attractive, or the price was right, or location, location, location. But what if I live where I live? What if I live where I live specifically because God put me there? Because God wants me to live where I live so that I might serve a particular group of people. So that I might serve that particular group of people, my block, my neighbors. What if in seeking to follow Jesus, Christians were the people who shop for their neighbors during a pandemic, help their neighbors with yard work, brought in their neighbors' trash bins, care for their neighbors when they were sick, unclog their neighbors' sewer lines, and on and on and on. Evangelism is no longer, or biblical witness is no longer coming to church, going to church in our world, in our culture. Surprise if this is news to you. But rather... By the end of Christendom, we are learning that living the gospel is not coming, but going. It's not gathering as much as it is being sent and being what Jesus described as light and salt. Thirteen years ago, when we were moving to San Mateo and looking for a home, I remember looking for or looking at our current home and thinking, well, if we're considering planting roots, putting uh, some roots down, putting some money down, moving into this place, it might be a good idea to just kind of see what the neighbors are like and get the neighbors' input and see what the neighbors think of this neighborhood. Are there huge train tracks right behind the place? Does the neighborhood flood? Is crime really bad? Well, let's ask. I went to the next door neighbor and knocked on the door. There was a car in the driveway. There were lights in on in the house, and I knocked on the door, no answer. I knocked again, no answer. I waited, no answer. I finally gave up, went to another house, had the same experience. I looked across the street. There was a garage door that was open. There was a man working in the garage. I thought, well, I'll go introduce myself. He may be a neighbor one day. Went and asked the man. His name was John. He was doing some work in his garage. I said, hi, my name is. This is why I'm here. Curious. Can you tell me what the neighborhood's like? Can you tell me what the neighbors are like? And literally he said, in answer to my questions, he had lived there 20 years and did not know the name of a single neighbor. Did not know the name of the neighbor on his right, did not know the name of the neighbor on his left. 20 years. And when we moved into that house on that street, I knew that we had work cut out for us. I knew that we had come. We were moving to California in order to serve a congregation and a church. But I also knew that we... We're coming to California to, say, to serve a neighborhood, to serve a community, to serve the people closest to us and around us. And what if that is how we all understood our homes, our neighborhoods, and our callings as individuals and as a congregation? And what if First Presbyterian Church became known as the people who serve their community, the people who serve their neighbors, who understand themselves not as people who are better than other people, 
but rather who exist as a community, as a congregation, as a body, as a collective in order to serve in the way of Jesus our neighborhood. Do you think our community would find such curious? Do you think a neighborhood and people would find such attractive? I do. And then finally, our second value suggests that we serve our neighbors generously. And the word generous often connotes generosity with regard to money. And I think this word made it into our values, at least partly because of that, this congregation has historically been a congregation of very generous people with their money. Through the ups and downs, through the hard times and the uncertain times, like this past year. That's how this congregation has been, supporting the work of God through the church, generous in that way, generous in giving in good times and not so good Giving to, giving for, giving away. The average American church gives away about 5% of its budget. First Press, uh, we budget to give away 15% to missions of our budget. Usually by the end of the year, after all the special offerings and things, that number ends up being about 17%. Still relatively small in some ways, but I appreciated when we came when I came, when we got to know this congregation. The congregation's commitment to generosity and to giving away, but not just with dollars. Generosity is measured not only in dollars, but in the whole of who we are, which includes our serving, which the disciple Peter, who was originally part of the indignant ten in our passage, went on to learn so that one day he would write to others, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. How is God's grace faithfully administered in various forms? By people using the gifts that each of them, us, have been giving to serve and in service. Each of you should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace. Our gifts, our talents, our skills, our abilities, like our dollars, are not for ourselves, but are to be used as instruments in our administering God's grace in its various forms, which I am regularly encouraged to see in and through so many members of this congregation. Serving, not just with their dollars, but with their time, with your talents, with your energy, with your hearts, with your wills. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a member of the congregation gave away a thousand face masks, serving our community in that way. There are individuals in this community who seem to go looking for other projects, dirty projects, in the homes of people, not just in the congregation, but in the community. Some of you raise money for the poor in our community. Some of you build houses for the poor in our community. Some of you serve in government. Jane Baker uh, is deceased now. She was a member of this congregation. She served on the city council of San Mateo. She served 
a term as mayor of San Antonio. There are some of you who tutor quietly behind the scenes the poor and the under-resourced and the learning delayed in our community, not, a part of, not as part of a program, but because you understand your gifts, your talents, your treasure, your time to be given to you that you might administer the grace of God in Jesus. There's never a shortage of people when it comes time to serve, and may this continue to be so, as ushers, as cleaners, as servers around here. I'm so encouraged that the new work that our deacons are doing during COVID, reaching out to, caring for, going, visiting, baking, cooking, sharing with members of our congregation. The word deacon comes from the verb diakoneo in Greek. I know I got to slip one of those in every Sunday morning just to keep my kids jaded. Uh, the word deacon is the same word here that's translated served and serve. God's calling us, not just a handful, not just a small number of us to be deacon servants, but all of us to identify in that way. The garments of a pastor should not be a stole as much as an apron, and for all of us as well. To such we are called, to such we have all been given gifts, ways that we can serve our neighbors generously with what we have, with what we do, with who we are, with the resources we have. I see some of you using the gifts, school, skills, talents of your vocational world and applying those in service, giving those away, serving the under-resourced in a variety of ways. I thought about that years ago uh, in the community that we used to live in in San Antonio and thought, well, what, do, what, do I, what do I have? Nobody wants uh, in our neighborhood for me to lead a Bible study or preach or whatnot. I ended up doing the weddings of several of our immediate neighbors. It was a way that I could serve. Ended up uh, going and visiting when they were going through crisis. It was a way that I could serve. We are called out of the church, into our neighborhoods, into our neighbors' homes, into the lives of the people around us in the name of Jesus with the gifts he's given us, with the resources he's given us to serve, even if it's menial, in the way of the one who served in that way. And as we do, those of us who aspire to serve in Jesus' way on our knees with a towel, that's how we become like Jesus. That's how we experience His joy. That's how God is glorified. That's how His love is made visible in a love-starved world. And that's how people are blessed. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. May those of us who aspire to walk in His steps also walk in those steps. Let's pray. Call us out of ourselves, God. Call us into the mission to which you have put before us. A joyful adventure. 
of giving, of pouring out, of stepping down, of looking below, of humbly offering whatever you've given us as ministers of your grace to a needy world, a broken world, a depraved and a deprived world. Not that we might judge, but that we might care. That we might be a part of your healing, your putting back together, your reconstructing, your salvation. Help us to make ourselves available for these things in our neighborhoods. Make us generous when we're not. And grant to us the joy of your salvation. Be glorified. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.